Hello, it's Thursday, September the 14th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me in studio today here in the nation's capital, Alice Hill. She's a Hoover Research Fellow focusing on catastrophic events such as the recent hurricanes in Texas and Florida and the implications of climate change. She comes to Hoover from an elegant structure just a few blocks to the west of here, which is the White House and the old executive office buildings, where she serves as an Obama administration presidential special assistant and senior director for resilience policy for the National Security Council. Alice, welcome to Hoover, and thank you for doing the podcast today. Oh, thank you, Bill. I'm so delighted to be able to join you. I was going to do a very lame joke about what it's like to have your name associated with disasters, but... (laughs) I guess I hadn't, you know, I've never really thought about that, but uh, I hope I'm not a disaster, but I do hope that I help prepare for disasters. The good news is in a town full of people who are synonymous with creating disasters, you instead (laughs) spend your time how to plan for disasters and react to them properly. All right, that's going to be my goal. Okay, Mark Twain famously said that we didn't really say it. A lot of things Mark Twain said, it turns out he didn't, but one thing he's associated with is the line, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Alice, it strikes me that given in the aftermath of both Harvey and Irma, Jose is headed to the United States next. I looked at the model today, this is for, uh, Thursday afternoon, Jose is supposed to avoid the United States, it might actually strike up north around Martha's Vineyard, uh, but it's going to not be the same disaster as, as the previous two were to the, to the to, uh, southeast United States. But it seems to me now we are talking about the weather, but the question is, what do we do about it? Absolutely. And the weather has always been a challenge for us, and it will always continue to be a challenge. What we are seeing is that when you combine weather events, that's what you get is climate, and the climate is changing as reflected in the changing weather events we're experiencing. Greater heat, more drought, more intense storms, and those lead to impacts, uh, health impacts, flooding, infrastructure damage. What are we going to do about it? Okay. Uh, Maybe because I just saw Dunkirk, when I hear the word resilience, I think Winston Churchill. I think about people under attack, people enduring. What is the definition of resilience, though, when we're talking about federal disasters? Is Is it experiencing and surviving the storm, or is it planning for the storm and then preparing how to avoid, how to minimize the damage from the next storm? Uh, Resilience is being able to prepare for, withstand, and recover from an event. That's being resilient. It has multiple definitions uh, within the federal government. Uh, And initially when I joined the Obama administration, we spent a fair amount of time trying to resolve what those definitions would be. But eventually it was determined we needed to move forward on what policies would help us achieve resilience, even if we had slightly varying definitions. And those were primarily, how do you prepare in advance of an event to mitigate, reduce the amount of damage caused by the event? Mm -hmm. Uh, As an aside, this has not always been your life's pursuit. (laughs) (laughs) That would be fair to say, yes. Explain to our listeners how you ended up in this particular line of the government and disasters and resilience. Absolutely. Uh, My career advice to those who ask me is be nice to your friends in law school. I happened to sit next to Janet Napolitano in law school. We uh, became great friends, and over uh, time, uh, she asked me to join her. Of course, I had a different career uh, before I joined her at the Department of Homeland Security. I was a federal prosecutor in Los Angeles. I was chief of the major frauds unit, so I pursued white 
white-collar criminals uh, for eight years. Then I moved to the Los Angeles County uh, judicial system, initially as a municipal court judge appointed by Governor Pete Wilson, and then I became a superior court judge. And for 10 of my 13 years on the bench, I served as supervising judge. I then got the call from Janet Napolitano and decided to join her at DHS. How I got into climate was I was the new kid uh, at DHS, and President Obama had signed his first executive order regarding uh, climate change impacts requiring all agencies to engage in the first adaptation planning across the federal government. And as you can imagine, as the new person in the department, uh, no one was particularly interested in climate. They said, oh, give it to her. Uh, and I took it. I, I also approached it, I didn't know much about climate change, and I approached it uh, as, I would have approached a case as a judge. I wanted to learn as much as I could, hear the evidence, and then uh, answer the question that I think was fundamental before we could do any planning on behalf of DHS, which is, should a large security agency like DHS with FEMA, CBP, Secret Service, Coast Guard, an array of agencies even care about climate change? So from there, uh, we moved forward, assembled a task force, and borrowed from the Navy's work, actually, uh, Admiral Roughheads, Gary Roughheads' work as Chief of Naval Operations in Navy Task Force Climate Change, and we educated a group across the department. Our consensus was, as a department, we needed to care deeply, and that was after reviewing the science, looking at our missions, and determining what the impacts of climate change, accumulating bad weather events and others, would mean for the Department of Homeland Security. If you look back at the Obama years, um, with the exception of Superstorm Hurricane Sandy, not too many natural disasters along that scope. Uh, that would be fair to say. We did have uh, the BP oil spill as well as H1N1, so those right. so were challenging. Like, in terms of things like Cat 3 hurricanes in the United States, pretty pretty calm for the most part. Did that make it more difficult to talk about this topic in terms of climate? It's always difficult to talk about climate. It's a, a remarkably polarizing topic. Uh, sometimes I feel, I'll, I'll use any word anyone wants me to use. I just want to talk about the risk right. because I feel we're ill-prepared for the risk. Um, so, of course, I encountered, I, I I would probably be rich if I um, had a dollar for every one time someone said, I hear you, I understand the risk, but I really just hate that term climate change. Right. I know that's out there. The challenge for us is that the risks are growing as we continue to debate the term. It's a little like that debate over resilience, defining resilience. We right. need to actually put in place, and there are policies that we could easily put in place that would reduce the risk at not great cost to the United States if we did it now. Okay, so let's talk about risk. What are the greatest risks facing this country right now when it comes to disaster vulnerability? We have a, a whole array of risks. We have, um, of course, risks that are intentional, war or nuclear um, uh, disaster, uh, terrorism. So th there's a whole panoply we also have naturally occurring, a pandemic. Uh, that would be devastating to the United States. And then we have uh, earthquake, well known to California listeners and others. Uh, but we also have the risk of a warming climate. 
we know that 2016 was the hottest year ever recorded. 2015 before that was the hottest year and 2014 before that. We also know that increased temperatures bring uh, changes to our climate, the, that accumulation of weather events. The most certain is ex increased heat. And it won't be just an average increased heat, it'll be increase in extreme heat events. Mm -hmm. So you recall this summer in Phoenix, it got so hot that American Airlines couldn't fly. It had to cancel 50 airplanes. Just this week in uh, Stanford, uh, we had to cut down comfort cooling, that is cooling for humans, because it got too hot, right. because we had to protect our computers and our research facilities. It's happened several times at the university over the summer. So, well, that's because we're hitting extreme heat events, and our buildings do not, plans don't account for the fact that we're going to see increasing heat events, so that stresses our capacity to perform as we would desire. You multiply that across the United States, that's what's happening. I, I try to do this in a humorous way, but I like to point out to people who follow this topic and know Stanford, Stanford graduates late. Yes. It's toward the latter part of June. And they like to do their graduation outside, which they can because it never rains in June in California, very rarely in that part of California. But they have their graduation in the football stadium at the height of the day. And when they did the last time, it coincided with one of these cooler alerts. Somebody's going to go down at one of these events because it's going to be 95 degrees outside and just brutally hot. Well, you raise a very excellent point. With these extremes in temperature, it uh, we see far more heat deaths. It's not widely appreciated, but in 2003, uh, there was an extreme heat event in Europe. And Europe does not enjoy the level of air conditioning that we have here in the United States. It's estimated that there were 70,000 deaths as a result of that heat wave. Uh, we can anticipate, heat is a big killer, we can anticipate um, an increased number of deaths as a result of uh, just warmer temperatures. Remarkably, a town in Pakistan this summer hit 128.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Now at some point, uh, it becomes too difficult for humans to be outside. There's, your listeners may be aware of the wet bulb temperature, but it's essentially uh, you cannot uh, survive for an extended period outside if we hit that extreme where your, precipit uh, excuse me, your perspiration will not keep you cool enough. So uh, we are going to see areas experiencing these events, which will make it very difficult for us moving forward. That heat also affects our infrastructure. So similarly, when we had the heat wave in California, 106 degrees and cool and foggy uh, San Francisco, wasn't it Mark Twain who said, I've never experienced uh, colder, uh, the coldest. Cold, the coldest winter was my, was my summer. So I don't yes. know if he said it, but he's credited with it. All right, so uh, Bart, had to slow its trains because it was very concerned about buckling rails. Our rails across, we do a lot of our freight traffic here in the United States on rail, and those rails uh, will buckle or kink in extreme heat, which can cause a derailment. Right. Danger for the United States, but think of how much rail we need to attend to as a result of increasing right. extreme heat events. BART is also a very tired system because BART was built in the 70s and it's very analogous to here in Washington DC with the Metro which was built 40 years ago not keeping off today's population but that's another information. Are you familiar with the work of Craig Pittman? No. Craig Pittman is an environmental reporter at the Tampa Bay Times and he wrote a rather interesting passage of that. He wrote a book called Oh Florida 
Uh, and here's what he's wrote the other day about his state. He wrote, I quote, We're the state that's constantly trying to kill us. We're the state with sinkholes, shark bites, alligators, and lightning. And we get hit by hurricanes. Yet people keep flooding here day after day. California has 40 million people now, or it's closing in on 40 million people, about two-thirds of whom live along earthquake fault lines. Houston, Harris County, nation's second fastest growing population. Florida, I think the stretch from Miami to West Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale is about six million people, a lot of them living in very nice condominiums right on the coast. What are we gonna do about people who insist upon living in harm's way? Well, we definitely have seen uh, major population growth, and that's not just in the United States. It's also around the world. Uh, we have become an urbanized world. Um, uh, more than 50% of people now uh, live in urban centers, and many of those urban centers are in coastal areas. Uh, so we know uh, that they are at risk because we know the sea is rising, and that's because warmer temperatures are causing uh, the melt of li land ice uh, and also the oceans to expand, and that means we have simply uh, retreating coastlines. I don't think we can say no more. Uh, we just put a fence up, uh, kind of like California tried to do, uh, I think, in the Great Depression with uh, folks from Oklahoma. Uh, I don't think we can do that. The question for me is, uh, as people choose to settle in harm's way, they have uh, local leaders who make choices about where development can occur. Those choices can mean that they're at greater risk for harm when the hurricane occurs. Uh, we know there are strategies, easy strategies to employ to keep people safer. They involve land use, deciding how close do you get to build to the ocean, as you know, it's uh, rising seas. Uh, it also involves building structure, uh, building codes. How uh, firmly do you need to, or how, uh, what kind of structure are we going to allow? And uh, I'll just add, I, I, I think of the story of the three little pigs, uh, where you've got the house built with straw, then the house built with sticks, and then the house built with brick big wind, uh, and the two homeowners in the straw and the sticks need to go to the brick. Uh, right now, in some com communities, including in Texas, there are no building cords, and in many places they're not enforced. So the question is, when a bad event occurs, and we know they'll be increasing, who's going to pay for the recovery? Right, so this interests me because we have a situation in this country where something terrible befalls a part of the country. And we went through this a little bit with Sandy, remember, where there are members of Texas, Ted Cruz most notably, but some Texas congressmen who said, why are we sending this money to this part of the country? And that was tied into some pork barrel spending and so forth. Those members noticeably silent when Texas gets hit, but this is the way the United States works. Something bad happens, the federal government very generously writes a check for recovery. But Alice, aren't we in kind of a sort of nonsensical situation when you're sending money to an area that gets hit and you don't use that opportunity to improve and prepare the area for what's going to happen next. For example, Harris County. Houston has been the home to three 500-year floods in the last three years. And I think we were talking about this the other day. We're going to have to come up with a new term for 500-year flood when it's happening every year. Um, but it's not just sending money, I think, for, for relief for these states. I think the federal government has to sit down with state and local government and have a conversation about about building codes, about infrastructure, and about how to more sensibly plan regions when, God forbid, the next disaster occurs because we know this is not going to be the last hurricane or the last flood to happen. 
I couldn't have said it better. I fully agree with you, and in fact, that was the agenda President Obama was marching out on. All right, so now so. I've set you up since you're, since you're in agreement with me. Let's put you in charge of the situation now. What do you do if you're sitting in government right now? What should Donald Trump and the Trump administration be doing at this point? We should be um, determined that we're going to build back better, and uh, we are going to push our nation to a one-and-done so we are going to build you back. We're going to build you back uh, to what we can reasonably expect, including incorporating the future risk of climate change, because all of our building codes, including our model building codes, are based on historical events. And I often hear, hear um, people say, well, we don't really have uh, enough record that this is occurring. And that is a challenge with climate change. We have a substantial record now that of these events uh, with wa increased wildfires, drought, uh, flooding, 50 inches of rain in Houston. All of these things are the types of events that are predicted with climate change. But uh, requiring that when people take communities take federal money, they build back better, and they build back with the intention that they're strong enough to withstand what's expected within a reasonable time frame. Of course, uh, what will happen further out is going to depend on the level of carbon emissions because that will change our trajectory as to how hot we get. So the impacts increase with more heat. But in the short term, we should certainly be shooting to, we'll pay you now, Houston, Miami, whomever, uh, but we're going to pay you with the understanding that you're going to build yourself back better so that you can withstand what we reasonably expect you will have to suffer. Um, I think also we should um, change the paradigm of how we give recovery aid. We have this very perverse incentive, and President Obama was not successful in changing this, where if a state chooses not to invest in disaster reduction, they have a good chance, if a bad thing happens, ending up with more money than the state that's right next to them that took their own funds to reduce the risk. Right. That is a perverse incentive, uh, and it needs to be addressed now that we, uh, President Obama uh, uh, proposed it in terms of a disaster deductible. So a state essentially has a deductible that they need to cover uh, before they get the federal funds. And... Um, we have not been able to really implement that or require states to take advance action in exchange for federal money. So let's talk a little bit about process. How do you drive this through Washington right now? You have an administration which is no fan of climate change, and you have a Republican Congress. So how do you take this and make this law? This is a fiscal conservatives issue. It's one that Typically, when I talk to people, they say, we're not doing that now. It's very surprising to them that we are not requiring that when taxpayer dollars are used to help others, we're not saying, we want you to use these in a way that keeps you safe. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity. I hope I'm not Pollyannish about this uh, for bipartisan support to find ways to say we can't keep having disasters cost us uh, the amounts they do. You know, from 1980 to 2013, we spent something like $260 billion for floods. And pretty much over the same time frame, we've spent $1.1 trillion in uh, recovery costs, not paid by the federal government, but just in general to these disasters. Just from 2011, we're seeing disasters increase, these 500-year floods. We're on a very poor trajectory here. 
and we keep rebuilding what we just had there on the assumption that, oh, it was an extreme event. Uh, maybe you need to think about this in terms of preventive medicine and that you prepare for disasters the way that you spend money on health care to prevent diseases, if you will. Let me read a quote to you and see if you know who the author of this quote is. This person said, quote, for every dollar we spend in advance of an event, for example, elevating a structure, we will save $4 in damages. I think I said that, but I think I was paraphrasing a, a study that was done by a mitigation group. It's one of uh, the few studies that we have currently about how much we save, but we have many examples right. as to how much you can save. Right. I think it was me. That's you. That's okay. You. Yeah. For every dollar you spend, you save $4 in damages. Um, so let's put this now in terms of something which Donald Trump likes to talk about, which members of Congress like to sign, uh, sign on to that means money for their district, and that is infrastructure repair. So maybe what President Trump needs to think about is taking the idea of of uh, disaster relief and resilience and tying it into infrastructure. Absolutely. Right. Uh, in January, I wrote on this topic uh, with Craig Fugate, the former head of FEMA. Not one penny should be spent on uh, this trillion-dollar package of infrastructure without requiring it that it be spent resiliently. Mm -hmm. And to be resilient would be you're thinking ahead about your future risk. So you put the dollar down, and it might be that dollar might reflect elevation, flood proofing, whatever it uh, represents. It would save us on the back end. So take us to Houston, Texas, to Harris County. What? What is preventive medicine in that part of the country? Well, their roadways right now is a pretty interesting case. They designed, uh, from what I understand, they designed the roadways so that they could handle a lot of water, and they would be kind of a, a sluice for the, water. The I-10 or also Some of these, roads. right. Yeah. And But unfortunately, so much rain fell, and of course we are anticipating these extreme precipitation events, you know, emergency managers call them rain bombs because so much rain falls at once. There's no place to go. And then if you have a lot of hard surfaces, there's really no place for the water to go. So this water is sitting in the roadways, and right now it's still there, as I understand. And it's because it's there, it's having a corrosive eroding effect. So they're going to have a lot of repairs needed for their roadways. Uh, and as we look forward, so it should be built back resiliently. To do that, they will have to consider the impacts of climate change because you cannot know what to build back for unless you look at what's your projected risk uh, for more extreme precipitation events. The default is just to look at what's happened in the past and say this is a freak event and we don't need to plan for it. So I recommend that any money that's in the recovery bills, the appropriation bill, any other, anything else that the nation spends on these important investments be done resiliently. Uh, some of your um, listeners may use that uh, San Francisco Bay Bridge, which is beautiful. You know, it fell in the Loma Prieto earthquake or was heavily damaged. And now we've replaced it for $6 billion. No federal money, by the way. California said they were going to do this on their own. Um, beautiful bridge. But they already need $17 million of mitigation work right. because they did not consider sea level rise in building that bridge. Kind of like Houston. Houston did not consider future risk when they put those roads in, even though they planned them to be drainage uh, for their city. But they clearly were not large enough as culverts uh, to get the water out. What else should we be doing in California? What, would, what should we be doing in Los Angeles, for example? And I ask this not just because I'm a Californian, but the fact is Californians are living on borrowed time. 
Derek, the, the, the Loma Prieta quake that you mentioned was 1989, happened during the World Series that year. The Northridge earthquake, I think you were living in Los Angeles at that time, weren't you? Yes, I was. In fact, uh, uh, there was a brand new courthouse that I spent a lot of time in as a judge, uh, supervising judge in San Fernando Valley. And that brand new San Fernando courthouse uh, was red tagged for quite a while because of damage in the earthquake. And that was had been built to the best codes at the time. Incredibly inconvenient. It was the dead of the night in, I think, February 1994, but it happened. Now, that's also, what, 23 years ago. So it's not an if, it's a when for these for these parts of California. So what should we be doing to prepare for these? So we have a real challenge, uh, I think, but we also have tremendous leadership. Uh, Mayor Garcetti has uh, passed a requirement for the city of Los Angeles that there be retroactive uh, work on buildings to make sure that they're seismically sound. That's an enormous uh, step forward because most of our housing stock, even if it's built to the latest codes, uh, excuse me, most of our housing stock is not built to the latest code, so it's highly vulnerable to further earthquake risk. Um, the other thing that challenge we have in California is that there's very little uptake on earthquake insurance. Uh, with a known seismic risk, there's only um, maybe 9 to 12 percent of uh, persons purchasing earthquake insurance. If you look at Christchurch, which suffered a number of very uh, severe earthquakes, um, they, yes, New Zealand, uh, they were almost fully insured, 90% insured, but they even had a, a significant economic uh, consequences as a result of those earthquakes. So without insurance, this will be a major challenge uh, if the big one hits, and it is a matter of time. It's not uh, a matter of if. And Alice, what do we do about these unfortunate people in Texas, for example? I don't know how many of them there are, but they always seem to be able to find a camera, or the camera finds them, and the first thing you hear is, I don't have insurance. Well, unfortunately, I think about 15% of uh, Harris County is insured under the federal flood insurance program. So most people are going to be uh, have a very nasty surprise uh, when they check on this. And without a bailout from the Congress, most of those people can expect something about $30,000 in public assistance. Um, that's not going to take them very far. They could get a small business loan, uh, but it's a loan. So we're going to end up bailing out uh, Houston, and that's where I think we set the requirements. I don't think it's um, been the nature of the United States to deny uh, recovery after these events, in part because they're still viewed as extraordinary. At some point, these will become almost ordinary, and maybe we will be less sympathetic to those who choose uh, to be in harm's way. I, it would not be fair if I didn't also say some people simply just don't have the resources. So we saw with Katrina, they didn't have the resources to evacuate. Something like 11,000 of our public uh, housing units are in uh, areas that flood in Houston. So we're going to have a lot of people who simply don't have the means. So we need to address that. Uh, but for those of us who do, I think there is a frank conversation that has to be had about who pays for these kinds of risks. And it certainly shouldn't be taxpayers when they don't invest themselves in resilience. You mentioned FEMA, which brings back memories of Katrina, which was, what, 12 years ago, I believe, 2005. Katrina brings back memories of heck of a job, Brownie, and so forth, and a much vilified government agency in the form of FEMA. But FEMA seems to be getting a lot of plaudits this time around with what's happened in Florida and Texas. What's changed? 
Oh, Katrina was just a huge wake-up call for everyone, uh, including uh, those in charge and Congress. So now, of course, you have to have a, an experienced emergency manager at the head. That's uh, number one. You have the uh, ability— the Trump's manager comes from, I think, Alabama. Right. Uh, so Brock Long. So he knows what he's doing, as did, uh, obviously, Craig Fugate. Uh, you also have pre-positioning of supplies. That's huge. So we're not trying to get um, some— uh, order done in the middle of the night that allows uh, those to go out. So that means they can be dispensed uh, very early. FEMA has spent something like $2 billion on training, or the United States has, on training uh, federal officials with state and local officials. Eisenhower said, I'll paraphrase something like, uh, uh, the plan is useless, but planning is essential. And that's the theory behind training together, they have a common risk picture. It's never going to unfold as they anticipated, but they have the relationships and they have an understanding of what the pre-identified vulnerabilities are. So that in increases the um, level of response so it's uh, more coordinated. We've also uh, seen um, really a change in our attitude to empower the community to help. So. Um, uh, what is it, the Bayou Navy, or um, there's a wonderful story from Katrina that uh, Admiral Thad Allen tells. Uh, he got down there shortly after um, Brown was relieved of his duties, and he was, Thad Allen would be in charge of the recovery. He was Commandant of the Coast Guard, I believe, at the time. And uh, he jumped up on a picnic table. He's all these Coasties and other uh, Coast Guard people saying, what should we do? And someone raised their hand and said, uh, Admiral Allen, how should we treat these people? And Admiral Allen said, treat them like your family. Don't worry. We'll stand by you if there's some violation of a rule, but you treat them like your family. And just knowing that we're committed to saving and taking care of people helped the morale of everyone and gave them the confidence to do the right thing. And then I do believe that uh, the recovery greatly improved. And you see that here as well in the recoveries that have been described. The community has been very much a part of it. And that's part of the change in FEMA. I think FEMA has also um, learned to better understand technology. For example, oh. I, have, I have a friend who works for Nextdoor, which is the app. It's the community network app. And apparently FEMA has been taking advantage of Nextdoor to become, you know, to get information more directly to people. Absolutely, and they uh, issue these uh, iPads to their FEMA core, people who go out in the field so they can quickly make the entries. It's not paperwork. Um, it just they have embraced technology to make it easier. Uh, they've also tried to simplify their forms so it's not so frustrating or, or the ability to uh, communicate with FEMA. One of the uh, interesting other technological innovations that has occurred is drones. Uh, you know, if you have a drone above a roof, it's much uh, pictures. It's a far more accurate assessment of the damage than if you have a guy who climbs up there and kind of peeks over and may miss, you know, because afraid of falling off, may miss a major hole. But that drain, drone captures it. And FAA moved very quickly and said, we're going to allow drones in this instance because it's going to help the public good. Right. So we're sitting here in Washington, D.C., and it's a rather interesting time right now because Donald Trump is meeting in private with Democrats and apparently coming to agreement on 
budget issues, on, on debt ceiling issues, maybe an agreement on immigration policy behind closed doors with Democratic leaders, which suggests that maybe Donald Trump is a little more open to conversations than people might have imagined. So let me ask you this, Alice. How would you approach this president and this presidency to talk about climate change, understanding what you said earlier, that them is fighting words, climate change? In other words, how do you bring a skeptic into the conversation without immediately getting into the brawl over what climate change is? We might call it it, uh, but we would call it risk mitigation um, and making sure that we are making choices now that reduce risk in the future. Famously, uh, Trump, as at least the media has reported, he has a golf course in Scotland uh, that he wants to have a seawall built because of sea level rise. There's been reports that his homes in Miami or his properties uh, are damaged. That's what I think we need to discuss is, look, we're seeing unprecedented risks. There are steps we can take now that will save the $4 on the back end if we invest the $1 now and uh, ultimately result in savings for the United States. That's the discussion I would have. You could almost, if you're at that level, leave the discussion of what exactly do we plan for to those who are down in the trenches, and then they'll have to look at the projections on how much our emissions are. But just the concept, we are going to build back better so we're prepared for the future. So here's the challenge on a topic like climate change, and there are a lot of other policy matters that fall on these lines. You're either for us or you're against us. If you believe in climate change, then somebody who does not believe in climate change is a, is a Luddite, is an idiot because they don't believe in it. If you are a climate change skeptic, then somebody who believes in climate change is what? A zealot, an absolutist, just too, too firm in their beliefs. Who in this town, Alice, is going to try to breach this divide and try to bring the two sides together and shall we say, a more adult conversation about this, a more, a more nuanced discussion about what's going on here. Because it seems to me when we get in any conversation about climate change, it's immediately judgmental on both sides, and we get caught up in, well, there weren't any storms for 10 years, now look, we've had two storms back to back. We just, we, we just go to war right away with each other. So how, how do we get around this? How do we actually have that, that conversation we need to have? Well, there are two things. For, there is a growing climate caucus, which is bipartisan. So there are people on both sides that are talking about this issue. But let's say they don't want to talk about climate. Where we do see it is in risk mitigation. I think what's happened with this flood standard is is quite insightful. Uh, and I'll let your listeners know that I am personally involved in the flood standard because my first assignment when I became joined the National Security Council was to uh, develop a flood standard uh, for the United States. So I was responsible of for getting it through the White House to the president's desk. Uh, of course, there were many people involved, primarily FEMA uh, and leaders across the federal government who contributed to it. But that standard basically said, um, learn from Sandy that uh, we need to elevate after one of these events to plan for future sea level rise. The Sandy Rebuilding Task Force instructed the National Security Council, so that's how I got the assignment, to come up with a national standard. Uh, and that national standard we developed, it requires that if you take federal money and build in or near a floodplain, you need to build two feet above what you norm normally would have built to, and three feet if it's a hospital or critical infrastructure. We also did include uh, an option for considering 
change from climate change. President Trump rescinded that order 10 days before Harvey hit. Now we have his Homeland Security Advisor uh, has stated in just this past week uh, that they are reconsidering, uh, reinstating that flood standard. And I think it's the recognition that it doesn't make sense for the government to rebuild these communities at the same level and then have them washed away again. That means we get to play, pay twice, uh, and it's hard to see the wisdom in that. That's the angle I think we need to go for, which is this is about saving us all money. It's not about uh, in more government regulation. It's really about who's going to pay at the end. And if you want federal tax dollars, we need you to invest those in a way that your structure is going to last. Right. It's about no longer being penny-wise and pound-foolish. As Benjamin Franklin said. And he actually said that. Uh, yes. And um, uh, he also has a uh, great quote, uh, by failing, uh, excuse me, by failing to prepare, we are preparing to fail. Right. And that is what it feels like right now. We are preparing to fail. That's also, and we a, John, need that's to also a John Wooden quote, by the way. Oh, is that right? John okay. Wooden, yeah. yeah, the great basketball coach. Right. Yeah. Prepare is preparing to fail. Okay, well, uh, we need to prepare to succeed at this point. I think the answer to this is the answer to most any challenge facing America. We need more George Schultz's. Oh, I couldn't agree more. We need a reasoned voice, uh, not putting uh, any kind of political spin on this, but this is the challenge, and here are the solutions, uh, and work together. I think these are issues we can and should work together, certainly my hope and uh, what drives uh, my passion for my work. Final question for you, and I'll let you go. Tell me what progress looks like a year from now. And I don't mean progress in terms of digging out of Florida and Texas and rebuilding, but in, from a policy standpoint, from this idea of preparing, the idea of resilience, what progress would you like to see a year from now? Because a year from now, we're going to be back in hurricane season. I would uh, like for any of our plans, uh, our operational plans or our strategies, to incorporate the future risk Posed by climate change. So what that would look like uh, would be we would have flood maps that accurately reflect future risk. Our current flood maps in the United States only look to historical risk, and those are even inaccurate. I would have a push uh, for our building standards. All of our model building codes, which are what are adopted across the United States, there is no federal building code. Those model building codes do not yet include future risk. I would instruct the federal agencies to work with those model building code organizations to make sure that they are up to the current risk. They have, by the way, indicated that they believe that we should um, be up to uh, future risk, but we have not been able to achieve those building standards. And I would have a requirement for any community, locality, taking money to rebuild, that it be used to rebuild in a manner that's resilient. If we just follow those rules and never even talk about climate change, we'll be a lot better prepared and a lot safer. Okay, let's make a deal. Okay. Why don't you write down these standards, write out, fill out your report card ahead of time with your categories, and let's get together about a year from now, and let's grade Washington on the job they did. Sounds like a great plan. Thank you so much. Alice Hill, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Really delighted to be with you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. 
You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover Fellows, including Alice Hill, straight to your inbox every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Alice Hill is also on Twitter. Her Twitter feed is at Alice underscore C underscore Hill. You made that complicated, didn't you? There are a lot of Alice, Alice Hills, Hills out there. there, I have to say. Anything else you'd like to highlight while I've got you here? I just want to say thank you. What a tremendous opportunity, and I so appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share these concerns about preparing the United States. Thank you. Well, thank you. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.